Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Gene Cooper about his new book, The Market and Temple Fairs of Rural China, Red Fire. And that's a book that just came out with Rutledge Press very recently. Now, what this book is, is a multi-sided ethnography of market and temple fairs in a region called Jinhua, which is on the east coast of China. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Gene Cooper about his new book, The Market and Temple Fairs of Rural China, Red Fire, and that's a book that just came out with Rutledge Press very recently. Now, what this book is, is a multi-sided ethnography of market and temple fairs in a region called Jinhua, which is on the east coast of China. And what Cooper does is he blends together historical and ethnographic modes of analysis in order to help us situate this picture that he gives us through his ethnographic accounts of the contemporary or the modern temple fair in different sites in this region as a site for popular resistance, as a site for the working out of different cultural forms and modes of performance, and as a space for the revival, the practice, and the emergence of popular religious uh, forms and popular religious symbols. It's a really interesting study that then grounds this contemporary picture in a diachronic picture of not just the way that the institution of the temple fair emerged and changed through time, but also the ways that some of the individual deities that are being worshipped at these fairs, some of the individual components of the kinds of practices that are incorporated into the popular cultural forms like opera emerged over time and the ways that they shape the contemporary practices right now. It's a very rich study. In the course of our conversation, he gave some really wonderful accounts of his own experience in the course of research and the challenges and the kind of aha wow moments along the way, or at least some of them. And it was a real pleasure to talk with him. So I really enjoyed it and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with Gene Cooper about his new book, The Market and Temple Fairs of Rural China, Red Fire. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Gene, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today about your book. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to do it. So, Gene, can you say a little bit about um, where this book fits in the larger trajectory of your work? And I'll I'll say a little bit about the book. The book we're talking about today is a multi-sided ethnographic study of market and temple fairs in a particular region of China, the Jinhua region, which is a city on the east coast of China. So can you talk about a bit about how you came to this topic in particular and how this fits within the larger trajectory of your work and your career? Uh, well, um, the impulse to study Chinese temple fairs and market fairs came about quite by chance. I was involved in um, an earlier research project on the uh, rural industrial sector of Zhejiang, was so-called Xiangzhen Chiye, 
And um, I had a collaborator at uh, Zhejiang University, Professor Jiang Yinghuo, and uh, he and I were uh, following an itinerary that had been set up for us by the local foreign affairs office. Uh, I came to hate the foreign affairs office uh, <laughs> over the over the period of my research because they were just so. Oh, they just made our lives so difficult and so miserable and humiliated Professor Zhang again and again and again by calling him in and telling him we shouldn't have done this and we oughtn't to have done that and yada, 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 yada. And, uh, oh, my God. Uh, and I later wrote a book, actually, called Adventures in Chinese Bureaucracy, in which I uh, got even with uh, the Chinese authorities for treating us so badly and so poorly. And I had previously thought that um, that sort of treatment would have been accorded to us primarily because I was a foreigner. Uh, but then uh, I had the occasion to read this book by Professor Cao Jinqing, who's a, a local uh, Chinese sociologist. And um, uh, his description of his treatment by local authorities was, uh, was a mirror image of my own. So I happily reviewed his book for uh, that, uh, what you call it, the China Review International out of Hawaii, uh, and told everybody how I happily gloated every time he mentioned he was having a problem with his local <laughs> local deception. Um, but that's another story. In any case, Professor Zhang and I were following this itinerary uh, through the county that had been set up for us by the Foreign Affairs Office, and... Uh, I don't know if they did it purposely or if it happened by coincidence, but in each of the market towns that we were visiting to visit these rural industrial enterprises, there was in progress one of these secular market fairs. And, oh, man, I mean, everything's out there on the streets and people are out there enjoying themselves and everybody's out performing their stick, whether it's martial arts or palm reading or opera performance or qigong performance and and everything's out there in public and you know we were having such a difficult time getting information that it just seemed to us at the time that whoa this is amazing this is just this is popular culture out there on the street in 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 display and and it, you can see it and wow wouldn't it be great to study that but we had spent five years trying to get authorization for this project on rural industry and changing the subject in midstream didn't seem to be in the cards. So um, we kept on with our project of local industry and uh, ultimately, um, you know, we finished the research and published a book. And um, then uh, I was at some point determined to go back to Zhejiang and see what this local fair, secular fair phenomenon was all about. Um, and I later succeeded in writing a grant to go back to Jinhua. Our research, Professor Zhang Yinghua's research and my own research, um, was carried out in Dongyang. And my interest in Dongyang, uh, just to get off on another tangent, had been stimulated by the fact that my early dissertation research um, in Hong Kong before China was open uh, had been conducted in a factory that was 
uh, a furniture making factory that was owned by a uh, an emigre from Dongyang County. So after completing my dissertation research, it was always seemed the next inevitable step in my professional uh, movement to, to look at Dongyang, to look at the native county of the entrepreneur whose factory I had been involved in studying in Hong Kong. So from Hong Kong, it went to Dongyang from uh, Dongyang, it went to Zhejiang University in my collaboration with Professor Jiang. And um, by chance, our encounter with this market fair phenomenon in the course of our research on um, uh, artisans and small industrial production in Dongyang that brought Jinhua to my attention. Why Jinhua? Uh, rather than continuing our investigations in Dongyang, was uh, primarily because when our reception in Dongyang by the Dongyang Foreign Affairs Office was had been so miserable. And, uh, so although I was familiar with the area and the region, I didn't think I wanted to put all my cards back in Dongyang again and um, uh, decided to go more broadly to Jinhua, of which Dongyang was a a uh, component, but w- would mean that I wasn't 100% dependent on the Foreign Affairs Office of Dongyang. Um, let, let, me, let me just wait for a second while I talk about the Foreign Affairs Office of Dongyang. Sure, sure thing. Um, I was going to say uh, that, um, what was I going to say? Uh, I forgot. We can come back to it if you want. Um, okay, okay. Oh, oh, I know what it was. Um, Dongyang. When I wanted originally to travel to Dongyang, it was it was difficult because Dongyang was a duwei bukaifang de difang, a place that was not open to foreigners. Although you could visit Ningbo and Shaoxing and Wenzhou freely in the early 1980s, Dongyang remained closed to foreigners for a longer period of time than those other cities. Um, And I think that I was the first foreign thing that got into Dongyang for the Foreign Affairs Office to to take care of. Um, You know, what does the Foreign Affairs Office do in a place that's not open to foreigners? (laughs) They they go to work, they drink coffee and smoke cigarettes and read the newspaper, but there aren't any foreigners because the place is not open to foreigners. So there's not very much for the Foreign Affairs Office to do. I was, I think, the first thing that the Foreign Affairs Office had to deal with in its function as a Foreign Affairs Office, um, because I got in there almost immediately upon the county having opened up. And for that reason, I think they tended to treat me and also Professor Jiang very much by the book. Um, Since we were there first, they were not in an innovative mood uh, in their in their treatment of us and and always, always held us to hold held us on a very tight leash. Um, And in, in. As we left the county, the Tiananmen um, um, disaster was in the process of happening. And um, I I think they they probably felt that they had done the right thing on keeping us on a tight leash since they might 
very shortly thereafter be called to task for the way they had treated us. But that's just another sort of uh, perspective on on uh, my relationship to the Foreign Affairs Office and their treatment of us. Uh, okay, um, uh, uh, space. <laughs> okay. Now, there's some really interesting things about this region that you mentioned in the book, the Jinhua region. You mentioned... It's the home of Hengdian, which China's Hollywood. You also yes. um, talk about a really interesting small commodities market in Iwu that's nationally known. Now, in the course of your descriptions later on in the book of the temple fairs or the small, um, the secular commodity fairs that you visit, you do mention some of the kind of challenges that, that um, colored or at least shaped your experience, including rain and cold. Where, aside from those uh, challenges of weather. What were some of the other particular challenges um, of working in this region for you? Perhaps aside from the the ones you've already mentioned, and aside from um, this, the fact of you know temple fairs being rained out uh, occasionally when you have the or not or if not rained out, then um, certainly characteri- characterized by uh, being rained on perhaps while you're there. What were some of the other challenges for you in doing this work in this region? Well, the biggest challenge in in China uh, doing social science research of any kind is access. Mm-hmm. And um, my own access um, was mediated by the Foreign Affairs Office of the university with which I was associated. Um, and so I, I couldn't just get on a bus and bop down to such and such a place and and have a look around and ask a bunch of questions, get back on the bus and go home. Um, my local reception had to be more formal and my what they would persistently tell me was that my personal safety needed to be looked after because if anything should happen to me, my receiving unit would be responsible. So, um, you know, it was it was getting local authorities to arrange for my formal reception. And, and that was that was the principal challenge. Um, this was, again, now in the late 1990s. And, you know, it's a decade later and things have probably to some extent loosened up. There are people who have carried out some very successful, um, um, intimate portrayals of of Chinese social life that uh, at the time I was trying to conduct my research, um, I never found a way to to really do effectively. In fact, this particular research project was designed to go to several communities so as to minimize the chance that if anything didn't go well in one community, you didn't have all your eggs in one basket. Um, So, um, you know, one was differentially treated uh, depending on where you were, um, depending on what local contacts had contributed to your ability to get to that particular temple fair. Um, there were ups in each community where, you know, wow, wow, I got to watch an opera performance and, you know, for the first time and holy cow, isn't it? Oh, it's just amazing. And, 
and and then you know there would be these incredible downs where you know you'd go out to a place that had been formally arranged and suddenly someone would appear and tell you that you were staying in a place that wasn't authorized to receive foreigners a hotel and that you'd had to go back there right away and move to it you know so um, it, 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 different different circumstances in different places led to different kinds of problems that you needed to really think quickly on your feet and try to make the best of what was a difficult and circumscribed um, uh, uh, kind of uh, circumstance where where you you just couldn't go spontaneously and stay in a tent. And and uh, like Malinowski, you know, asked people about the intimate details of their relationships with their mother's brother. I mean, it's just it's not, you know, it's not what Malinowski would have recognized as ethnography. And yet uh, it, it it's the way that one needs to conduct oneself in order to both get access and make sure that even if one's access in a particular instance is compromised, that there are follow-up communities that could fill in the gaps, so to speak. Um, yeah. And I'll, um, I'll just say for the benefit of listeners, um, and I'll also uh, say to you that throughout the book, there are stories and moments and footnotes and asides and parts of the narrative that really, um, bring out those those wow moments, those moments where you clearly, I mean, in the course of your research, were struck by, wow, that's so cool, or oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. The narrative is full of that in this really lovely, really sparkling way, and so it's really a pleasure to read those moments, um, and I'll just... Well, it's interesting that you should mention that. I had to take out a bunch of asides to... to oh, really? To satisfy my editors, but uh, I, I stood firm on several others, and I guess those are the ones that you enjoy. Were there any asides, now that you mentioned that, I, mean, I, I have to ask, right, were there any in particular that you were especially excited about and particularly hesitant to take out that didn't make it um, into the book, but that you, you would want to share with listeners? Uh, well, off the top of my head, it's kind of hard to come okay. up with them, but... Uh, but uh, um, no, I, I I was just leaving through the book before, and um, um, there were there were a couple of places where I remembered that I had a, a phrase or so left in that uh, I I won't come up with it. I'm I, it's just not in my There's this not speech right now. There's this great moment, and we'll get to this uh, later on in the conversation, and we'll get to the the book um, in just a, the um, arguments of the book in just a moment or two. But there's this great moment where um, you describe traveling or walking to um, a particular temple or a particular temple fair with a group of people who had who had walked just a just kilometers, got to the gate, um, and whoever was guarding the gate didn't let them in, and you were oh, arguing, yeah. and you, and I remember thinking to myself, I've never seen the word schle in an academic book before, and I love it. Um, <laughs> so. Well, that was one of them. I mean, they, they literally had slept. By, it slept. Oh. That's what they did, right? And, and of course. And and this guy, you know, just just this gatekeeper had had no no I don't know no sympathy whatsoever with their with their predicament, and and it it was just. You know the 
the height of, of uh, I've got the power to stop you, and so I'm going to. And, um, yeah, no, it, and again, um, that, that incident uh, was, was one of the sort of the things that is, is especially revealing about uh, Chinese social life and and you know the you know I had been myself in a, in similar situations again and again and again and again being told uh, you know uh, hey always after the fact uh, you've uh, you've gone against the regulations and you only find out about the regulations after you <laughs> trespassed against them. Um, you know, uh, there is a book, it's called Adventures in Chinese Bureaucracy. I think it's probably out of print right now, but it was published by a small um, um, uh, garage-type publishing outfit. Uh, but it it does describe the many trials and tribulations that uh, one has to endure uh, carrying out research in the People's Republic of China. Thank you. I will check that out. We can get to the we can get to the to the present book. I so so far we haven't. No, no. Well, we're we're getting there. We're, I'm actually I'm okay. just about to ask you about um, actually one of the words or one of the phrases in the title. Now, as we move into the book, the book is set up in two parts. After providing an extended background of the region, its religious institutions, and the history of temple fairs in general, and in a very diachronic way, in part one. The rest of the book moves into the economic, cultural, religious, and political dimensions that contribute to what you call the red fire of temple fairs in Jinhua today. So since this notion of red fire is one of the motivating concepts that really runs throughout the book, can you start us off um, on the path to uh, or through the book by saying a little bit about what red fire means for you and how it shapes the way you think about this phenomenon? That's a very good place to start. And um, the, as I discussed in the introduction to the book, this notion of red fire uh, was a, a, something that was in my notes, and I it was a kind of a, a minor motif in in the book as I had conceived of it. Um, and then um, I read, an, uh, I guess it was either an article or it was in his book, um, Miraculous Response, uh, by Adam Chow, uh, in which he espouses what he calls a sociothermic theory of Chinese sociality, um, meaning that Chinese evaluate events on the basis of how much heat they generate. Um, and heat is generated by groups of people getting together and their bodies all together and their co-participation in an event and witnessing an event and and being in the audience and or um, uh, trundling along the street in 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 the company of hundreds and thousands of other people and and the larger the concentration of people and the greater the excitement, the more heat the particular event generates. Uh, and indeed, it seemed to me at that point that uh, I mean, Adam was kind of joking in, a, in a, I guess he had his tongue in cheek 
when he espoused the sociothermic theory, uh, but it seemed to me to capture the uh, the spirit of of what temple fairs, market fairs were all about was this incredible concentration of people enjoying themselves, partaking of whole series of entertainments and out there on the street and in public and and it, it just seemed uh, uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful venue to to watch Chinese people enjoy themselves and express themselves and and entertain themselves and be entertained and <laughs> wow, all out there in public again. Um, and I emphasize the fact that, you know, it's public entertainment and, and people want you to see it as opposed to keeping their cards close to their chests and uh, disguising what's being said and, 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 and all of that sort of stuff. Now, the book charts a history of temple fairs as a way to situate the ethnographic aspect of the study, and this is an example of the ways that the book is very much grounded in a, a uh, two different kinds of methodologies for understanding this phenomenon, historical methodology and ethnographic methodology. And you talk about the relationship between these two um, at the in the early stages of the book. Now, what I'm going to do is just very briefly sketch the narrative arc um, of that you set up for, temp- for the history of temple fairs as an institution, and then we'll get to what present-day temple fairs are like. So the narrative arc that you describe looks something like this. Temple fairs are suppressed and secularized during the early communist period in the 50s. In the 60s, they make a brief comeback during the period of recovery after the Great Leap Famine. Then they're suppressed again during the Cultural Revolution and from 66 to 76. And then after Mao's death, what we see are policies of free market reform in which the reemergence of secular commodity exchange fairs um, is, is encouraged as a way to boost rural commodity production, boost circulation and consumption. In the early 80s, economic reform efforts to stimulate the public economy of the rural areas in China means that these secular commodity fairs are given a space to function. And once they're in place, they become spaces for the emergence and revival of not just um, a a wide range of popular cultural performances, and and we'll talk about that for, I think, um, a large part of the remaining conversation, but also a revival of popular religious symbols and practices. So there's, this is the general arc that we're working in, and the first part of the book sets this up and sets up the kind of conceptual basis for thinking through um, what some of these, um, or how to understand the ethnographic aspects of the study and the contemporary or modern uh, dimensions of temple affairs um, in, in this larger context. Okay, so now that this sort of brings us to the point at which you're doing your research. So as we get into the the different dimensions um, that you sketch out in uh, certainly the second part of the book that um, show us the kinds of space that these temple fairs have produced, can you talk a little bit about what um, the nature of a fair in Jinhua is? Um, Can you describe, if, if, if this concept even makes sense, a typical fair 
fare? And I have this in the air quotes here. What's a typical fare like in, um, in present day Jinhua or present day as of the point of your research? How, do, how long do they last? What time of year are they? What can you find there? What kinds of people go there and such? Well, my goodness, you've, you've touched on so many subjects along the way that I don't really know where to latch on to except to answer the last question. Yeah, that, that was but, the but, point. That was the point. Keep that, question, keep that question up there and don't lose it. But I just did want to say something about your opening um, remark about um, the two perspectives of history and anthropology, mm-hmm. um, which I think... Are I, I mean I think that's a very important aspect and dimension of the book, uh, and it's one that I have um, myself been thinking more along the lines of. In particular, since there's just been a conference announced by the Social Science and History Association of Europe. Uh, about their upcoming conference. So it it is a theme that I've been thinking about again. And and I do think it's particularly important, um, especially in this study of a civilization like China, where uh, every particular phenomenon that you might observe in, in popular culture has a history that extends, you know, perhaps uh, 100 years, sometimes as long as 700 years, sometimes as long as 1,000 years, and on and on and on. And you you really can't ignore that, that historical background. Um, as I point out in Chapter 1 of the book, there's a, there's a long um, history of, people recognizing the the importance of historical background to ethnographic investigations going back to Evans Pritchard in, in his statements of the 1950s to the effect that anthropology is history or it's nothing. Um, and he was later quoted as having said the reverse, that history is nothing if it's not anthropology. And the introduction does, in fact, um, sell the book, if you will, as a or present the book as a as a study in the in the uh, combination of uh, of approaches um, that you mentioned in your introductory comments. So I did want to grab onto that sure. before we let that slide. Um, and then the last question was about um, the place occupied by the fairs. The the sort of what's a typical fair like. So that we can, um, as we, I think before we get into the details of um, of your description and your analysis of the fair in terms of um, its commercial and economic dimensions, its popular dimensions, there and are the specifics st- of each individual fair. We want to talk kind of in general about what they're like. Exactly. But yeah, the fairs um, are uh, annual or semi-annual events. In the past, they were. They were convened on the birthdays of deities associated with local temples. Uh, so, for example, San Yuesan, uh, the third day of the third lunar month, is the occasion, or was the occasion in the past, of a of a temple fair of uh, I think it was I think it's Dongyue uh, who was whose birthday was on the, 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 the deity of the Temple of the Eastern Peak, 
um, uh, a, a, a fairly renowned deity in the, in the eastern portion of China. Um, and uh, so his temple fair was convened on the third day of the third month. And uh, interestingly, in the town of Huangtianfan, where we visited um, um, rural industrial enterprises, uh, there was uh, a fair on Lunar 3-3, even though Dongyue's temple was nowhere to be seen. Um, and so there seems to be this sense of, of, a, of a time that's appropriate to hold a temple fair that has very little to do with the contemporary and everything to do with the way we held our temple fairs in the past. And even if we're going to have a secular fair that has no temple, uh, we're still going to hold it on, on the third day of the third month. Of course, that's when we always held temple fairs. Um, so, uh, you know, the deities are spread through the year. Uh, their birthdays occur at different times. Um, the fair that perhaps we'll have a chance to discuss somewhat later, the temple fair of Hukong, for example, is held on lunar 813, the 13th day of the eighth lunar month, which is supposed to be his birthday. Um, but because there are so many people who want to come and pay respects to Hukong, um, <laughs> not all of the people can fit uh, on the, the small mountain uh, clearing where the temple is placed on the day of lunar 813. So they create a schedule that begins in the beginning of the eighth lunar month on the first of the eighth lunar month and continues all the way through to Zhou Yuezhou, the ninth day of the ninth month, which happens to be Chongyang Festival. So for a whole month, uh, there are continuous processions of people from various villages going to the Hugong Temple to uh, pay their respects to the deity um, and uh, doing a variety of dances in his entertainment, um, gung fu performances, um, um, little skits and entertainments that, that make the deity happy. But because his one day's birthday can't accommodate so many people all at one time. They spread the they spread the performances out over the over a period of a of more than a month, a month and ten days, basically, um, to fit everybody in. Um, so um, th- that has to do with when the temple fairs are held. Um, when they are held, they generally the market that's associated with the fair is generally convened for three days. And the level of specialization of goods, the the degree to which, um, what do I want to say? Uh, the, the, the level of specialization of goods offered, as well as the variety of goods offered, is greater by far than what is usually found for sale at the standard market town where the fairs are held. The fairs attract merchants from distant provinces who bring their goods to Zhejiang to to sell at the fairs. Um, And that counts in some respects for reasons why the fairs are clustered 
uh, and why, for example, in our own itinerary through these market towns, we happen to hit three or four different fairs in succession, Professor Chang and I, um, just by happenstance, which is precisely why the fairs are clustered in this way, to give merchants the chance to go to one fair after another, after another, after another, um, and take advantage of the the clustering of demand that occurs in each successive venue um, very near one another, very close to one another. So the fairs last for three days, and people regularly postpone uh, their major purchases, if they're in the market for a particular item, to, to wait until the local commodity fair uh, breezes through their market town because they know uh, that the the variety and degree of specialization of goods is much greater than what they might otherwise uh, have at their disposal uh, on an ordinary weekly basis. So they'll say, oh, well, there's temple fair coming up or market fair coming up uh, in the next month. We'll wait to buy that plow uh, or we'll wait to uh, to purchase that uh, that cloth because we know there's going to be oh a uh, hundred cloth merchants in town uh, for the fair coming up. Um, the fairs differ in terms of their emphasis depending on the season as well. So, for example, in the winter time, um, the fairs offer great varieties of goods that are uh, part of a dowry. Um, collections, uh, furniture, uh, clothing, uh, the sort of stuff that endows a household, housewares, uh, that kind of thing is is for sale for the most part in the fall and the winter. Um, during the agricultural uh, off-season when rituals like marriages and stuff are generally conducted. And, and then fairs which are held in the spring uh, tend to have more agricultural equipment and draft animals and seed and that sort of stuff uh, for sale. Um, and then the fairs differ in terms of their emphasis. So, for example, in our s- small sample of fairs was the Qianxiang Fair, um, which, among other things, uh, it serves as a kind of a wholesale market for medicinal goods. Uh, and medicinal herbs, which the county was um, uh, well endowed in uh, in the traditional period, but lost some of its edge when it had to concentrate in, on grain during the Maoist period. And in the course of economic reforms, has gone back to the growing of traditional herbs. Great. Now, once we um, get into, or, or as we move into what constitutes the bulk of the book, what you do is you take us through different dimensions that contribute to this bustling, this efflorescence, this red fire um, that we've uh, briefly talked about of temple fairs in Jinhua today. The first commercial economic dimension we've actually already, um, you've already talked a little bit about. And this is something that you elaborate in the course of the book um, in giving us snapshots of five communities, one of which, uh, Qianxiang, you've already talked about, Mm. each of which was successful in 
producing and enhancing the circulation of particular kinds of commodities in rural China, and each of which specialized, um, at least it's at, in some, at some point, in somewhat different products. Mm. Um, now, one of the really interesting things that comes out in this discussion is that two of the communities that you look at, Xiaowang and Judaishir, share the worship of a local female deity, Mafu. And this mm-hmm. is a really interesting um, part of the story. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, uh, that, that came as quite a surprise, actually. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't something that uh, I knew about ahead of time. Um, and um, one of the interesting things about it is that um, the deity herself, um, the worship of the deity, seems to be shared by both uh, Han Chinese and non-Han Chinese, the so-called Shu people, um, who have uh, attained national minority status uh, and uh, whose community thereby is... Um, um, recognized by the state uh, as a uh, as a minority community, um, she is again uh, typical of these local deities who don't really have a national following per se. Who are, for the most part, um, local deities who whose lives. Um, um, may or may not have actually really existed, but in this case, she seems to have been uh, a, a real person uh, whose life is, um, as is often the case in these, uh, what I, what would you call them, these, um, the, these germs or seeds that that are the the stuff of which myths are produced. Um, and she has obviously served as a, uh, a kind of a lightning rod for um, a variety of, of miraculous kinds of behavior uh, that have become associated with her. And uh, she is uh, worshipped by groups of people who do, in fact, uh, believe that uh, she is up there and can, in fact, have some influence on the affairs of the living in the contemporary world. Now, as we move from the economic and commercial to the popular cultural dimension of these temple fairs, we get into some really fascinating um, descriptions of local cultural forums and also ways in which you're integrating these phenomena into some larger theoretical or conceptual threads that listeners who aren't familiar with um, China may yet be familiar with from other contexts. So one of the things you talk about is the ways that local temple fairs serve as a kind of Bakhtinian carnivalesque atmosphere. And this is um, this comes up in really interesting ways when you're talking about circuses and freak shows and the grotesque in particular. So can you talk a little bit about that, the carnivalesque atmosphere and the grotesque um, in these temple fairs? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's long been recognized that at least historically, the fairs have been sites where the the constraints of everyday living and the the restrictions on 
behavior are, have, are to a certain extent suspended. This was noted by C.K. Yang, the, the great authority on Chinese religion and Chinese religious practice um, back in his, his book of the 1940s um, or 1950s. And um, uh, the same theme uh, with a, uh, a nod to Bakhtin is taken up, has been taken up more recently by uh, the Chinese scholar Zhao Shiryu, uh, who uh, more or less overtly uh, says that, uh, yes, temple fairs are a phenomenon uh, very much like the sorts of things that um, Bakhtin has described as characterizing the European carnival. And in fact, uh, Zhao Shiryu has even written a book to the entire effect. Um, and so my uh, ethnographic observations of uh, these uh, freak shows and uh, um, trained animal acts and uh, circuses with contortionists and, and, and such um, is very much along the same lines uh, as has been pointed out by uh, by these previous scholars of uh, of Chinese temple fairs, um, and um, I mean even the opera itself is to some extent an example uh, of of the grotesque. I would say um, men performing as effeminate females, um, as uh, as deities, as gargantuan uh, figures of uh, of the past, uh, heroes, generals, uh, and, and so forth. Um, uh, the opera is, of course, uh, one of the principal uh, activities of, of temple fairs, both for the entertainment of the deity as well as to bring out the crowds to the commercial market. Um, and we could talk more about opera as well, if you'd like. Actually, yes. Let's do. Let's um, before we get to opera, let's get to okay. that next. But um, because it's related to this discussion of this kind of Bakhtinian carnivalesque, another related claim that you're making or argument that you're developing throughout the book is that we ought to look at fairs as sites of everyday forms of resistance in the sense of James C. Scott's work. So, would you talk about that for a little bit, and then we'll get to opera? So, sure. Um, yeah. I, I, the phrase that I borrow from Scott, and I, I think I've got it memorized pretty well, is that uh, the fairs have become sites where people engage in their version of the struggle to control the concepts and symbols by means of which current experience is evaluated. Um, the struggle to control the concepts and symbols by means of which current experience is evaluated. And that is a struggle. I mean, it's, it's not in the sense of, you know, seizing weapons and, and organizing an insurrection. It's what Scott refers to as sub-insurrectional resistance. And um, just, just, the mere participation in a ritual that pays homage to a deity 
in this respect, is is a form of thumbing one's nose at the secular authorities of the state and saying, you know, poo to you, you don't control every part of my mind, and I give over a section of my belief to to this deity, and you're not in any position to to make me do otherwise. And in that respect, um, by its by its mere performance, it becomes an act which which is in some respects a kind of a kind of of resistance, a kind of you know poo poo to you, um, and uh, where um, I, you know I, certainly the contortionist is somebody who appears uh, a couple of times in the in the manuscript, and um, it, it's a symbol in in Bakhtin's analysis of of the the way in which the expectations of reality are confounded and and tested and pushed to their limits and uh, in, in that respect represents a kind of a, a kind of a stretching that um, characterizes everything else that goes on there. Now, some of these forms of resistance take the form of um, forms, I'll say forms, 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 forms of popular culture. And you talk about several of these in the course of the book. You talk about um, something called xiaolo uh, shu, right? yeah. a small symbol narrative, um, which, is, which is really interesting. You talk also about um, jinhua daoqing. Yes, it's another kind of folk performance, mm. but perhaps the um, the uh, what I call a kind of minstrelsy, I think minstrelsy. Uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, but the form of pop or the form of popular culture that gets the, the most extended discussion in the book, in fact, it gets its own chapter, is wuju, uh, jinhua opera. And this, yeah. um, you say, is, is the most important source of the red fire at local fairs in many ways. So this is the chapter gives a really uh, just wonderful elaboration of the types of genres that are involved in wuju, um, the the makeup of the troops, the structure of the opera. Performance, performances, there's really wonderful and very detailed accounts of all of these aspects of wuju performance. But you, you mention here that wuju made its greatest contribution to this red fire phenomenon in the form of something called dotai opera competitions. Now, these are fascinating, um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about what these competitions are and, and why they're so important to this phenomenon. Yeah, Dotai is is a, a, a kind of I guess you would call it the climax of of uh, wuju performance, and I, I I'm reasonably certain, although I can't put my finger on the sources, that uh, Dotai is a uh, an opera performance uh, event that occurs in other opera genres as well, but in in other places in China as well. Um, but in Jinhua, um, the, the host of a temple fair in an effort to get the crowds to be as large as possible and to 
increase the breadth of the market and or to increase the influence of the deity will hire more than a single troupe to entertain. Um, and in accord with Chinese customs of lavishness, um, it can sometimes get to the point of uh, as many as 10 to 15 troops hired simultaneously to perform on uh, makeshift stages that are set up for the purpose uh, and uh, all perform simultaneously and continue to do so throughout the night until the cock crows in the morning, at which point the size of the crowds at each particular stage watching each particular troop is summed up or, or totaled up, and the group with the largest crowd uh, awarded the, uh, the title of, of winner of the struggle for audience, uh, and uh, its reputation enhanced thereby, and uh, perhaps uh, the amount that it can com- command for future performances thereby increased. Uh, the the fame of its performers uh, reaffirmed and or enhanced, and um, its reputation assured. Um, people say that the practice itself insofar as it stimulates competition and um, uh, uh, excellence has has done much to improve uh, the quality of our performances generally um, and um, uh, enhance the uh, the overall performance characteristics of the genre um, it's an activity in which amateur troops also uh, will engage and um, amateur troops as well can uh, gain significantly in their reputation by uh, doing well in in their struggles for audience in their dotai performances. And there's a really um, wonderful juxtaposition or potential juxtaposition here, and I'll just sort of mention this before we move on. Where um, we go from thinking about temples and, and temple practices and temple culture to looking from the space of the temple to the space of the stage as a kind of um, space of worship in a sense. And you've got this really wonderful description in here of the process and the practice of consecrating and sacrificing um, to to make the stage ready for a performance, which invites a really interesting comparison of the spaces of the stage and the temple, I think in a productive way. So, so which gets us to um, the religious dimension, or which, which we'll move to now. Now, there are important deities in the Jinhua region, which are the three Buddhas and the five Marquises. Mm-hmm. Chapter 8 focuses on one of the five Marquises, Hugong Dadi. And I think you've mentioned, um, you may have mentioned him earlier. Yes. The temple fair in Hugong's honor at Fangyan during the month of his birthday is one of the largest in the entire region, and it's been associated with a popular religious dimension since its revival. This cult materialized around a figure of the Song Dynasty official Hu Zhe. Because this 
official and this source of the deity becomes actually really important later on in helping to explain why this um, temple to this deity actually survives and perhaps flourishes. Can you say something about um, who is this figure, Hudza, how this deification happens and, and why this is important for the later story of, of this temple and of Hugong in this context of Jinhua? Yeah, well, who himself um, was a uh, uh, an official of the Song Dynasty, um, and uh, the myth associated with him has it that uh, in the course of a drought, uh, he went to bat for the common people and submitted a memorial to the throne requesting that the head tax. Uh, be suspended um, for the period um, to give the people some relief from from their obligations and more to consume themselves. After which, uh, he was lauded for his righteousness by the local people, and they um, really thought he was a great guy and all. And after his death, uh, they erected a temple. Um, on his uh, in his honor, uh, at which uh, his um, I suppose he he began to be worshipped as a uh, as a sort of a local kind of guy, but then um, in the course of a subsequent rebellion, the so-called Fang La rebellion, um, the leader of the rebellion, one Chen Yisi, Chen Shisi. Uh, number 14, Chen, uh, a woman, um, was holed up uh, on the Fangyan Mountain um, right next to the Hugong Temple. And she has this dream about uh, being visited by Hugong, and he forecasts her uh, demise, and uh, she wakes up and discovers that uh, things are pretty strange, and she beats a hasty retreat, and as a result, Hugong is recognized as having played a role in the defeat of the rebellion. Uh, at least his spirit has, has played a role, and uh, he therefore gets an imperial designation which vaults him kind of into the stratosphere of deities uh, and makes his continued worship, uh, guarantees his continued worship down to the time when he becomes ultimately a dadi. And I don't know exactly when that happened, but um, it doesn't seem to have involved any further imperial designations. It seems to have been the result more of a kind of a grassroots um, um, uh, recognition of the miraculous character of his uh, of his uh, powers and his abilities. And at at a point later, and. Uh, kind of off the cuff praise by Chairman Mao about Hudza, who's the um, the locus. Well, that, that of course speaks to the to the to the contemporary period in which, uh, in contrast to a whole variety of deities whose whose worship tends to be uh, more controlled or restricted, 
uh, Hu Gong has more or less been given a blank slate by the Communist Party as as someone who's <laughs> who's okay, um, and that has to do with this this rather remarkable incident in which uh, Chairman Mao, on his way back from Lushan in um, uh, Jiangxi, where the Communist Party had its famous conference. Uh, back in uh, whenever it was at the end of the Great Leap Forward, 1957, when no, it was 59, I guess, was the Lushan Conference. Um, and Chairman Mao took it in the ear from uh, Marshal Peng Dehuai at the Lushan Conference for the excesses of the Great Leap Forward and for his... Uh, basically, as a result, he was more or less kicked upstairs. In fact, the later Cultural Revolution was his attempt to get back some of his influence that had been lost as a result of the plenum in Lushan. So the old chairman was probably not in a particularly good mood on his way back to Beijing from Lushan. But he took a train, and the train, for some reason, stopped in Qinhua, and um, on the spur of the moment, the chairman called a meeting of the local cadres and officials in Jinhua. And one can imagine these guys sitting around uh, with the chairman, hoping that they don't say anything stupid or anything wrong in the process and or embarrass or humiliate themselves or their region in the eyes of the chairman, who isn't in a particularly good mood to start with. Um, and he says to them uh, something to the effect that uh, what's the most famous thing in the terms of the Yung Kang secretary, and he says to him, what's the most famous thing in Yung Kang? And the guy says, uh, well, it must be the ginger of uh, Woods Mountain, and uh, the chairman looks at him and he says, well, yeah, maybe, but no, not really. The most famous thing you have in Yung Kang is Hu Gong, the famous Hu Gong, uh, the, the, the famous Song Dynasty official who served the people. And you cadre should take him as a as a model for your behavior because he he had the people's interests at heart. And so he's a good guy, isn't he? And he made this uh, statement, the quote for which now is actually emblazoned at the entrance of the Hugong Temple, signed by Mao Zedong, saying, you know, yeah, wow, this uh, Hugong is a good guy, you know, you should be like Hugong. So, from the outset, the the sort of the revival of temple fairs on Hugong's birthday, uh, Lunar 8.13, which take place not just in Fangyan, but in all of the temple branches throughout the region in which uh, there are a variety, uh, a large number of Hugong temples scattered around. Uh, each one of them has a a commodity exchange fair on Lunar 813, and um, the Hugong temple, by virtue of this endorsement by the chairman, have been among the first to revive and to recreate what I say in its initial stages was a total social phenomenon combining the secular and the spiritual. And so that 
combination has reasserted itself in the case of the Hugong Temple Fair, uh, which is, in, in, in my analysis, the, the total social phenomenon par excellence. While we're on the subject of total social phenomenon, we might want to talk a little bit about the town of Fort Han. Mm-hmm. Right. Is chapter sure. 10. Sure, and sure. If you, if you, if, go for it. I could just segue right into that, or if there's something else you wanted to ask about Hukong, we could. Oh, I was just going to mention um, for listeners that the fact that you actually um, bring out the importance of the political dimension by um, mentioning and talking about the importance of Hukong <coughs> actually becoming an object of political maneuvering by communities who both want to establish themselves as stops along the pilgrimage route to worship yeah. him. And so I think yeah. that was an important so that, story. So that, that, has, that was something that, that came to my attention, again, quite by chance. Um, and uh, I was visiting Hugong's native town, uh, the town of Huku, uh, which is inhabited, <laughs> not surprisingly, uh, by people who are surnamed Hu. Um, and uh, Hugong is uh, belonged to one of the branches of that particular lineage, and um, his his own market town, in fact, has a, uh, a market fair um, on his on his birthday, and I was lucky enough to be able to actually attend the fair in the town. Um, and that was great. Um, but the, the thing that made that visit so important and so exciting to the monograph was the chance meeting that um, my escort and myself had with this farmer who said, whoa, man, you're in Huku. You, you have to go up to to Upper Huku to have a look at the new temple construction, and so um, luckily my my escort of the day was flexible enough to have said, "Sure, let's go," and so um, we got into a three wheeled uh, you know sort of farm vehicle taxi. And went out to uh, Upper Huku, and whoa, there was in fact the old family temple of the Hu branch of the family that Hugong had descended from that had been refurbished and fixed up in anticipation of large numbers of visits to Huku which had recently built a temple to Hukong down in Lower Huku. Um, now, Lower Huku and Upper Huku are administrative divisions that were created in a single, basically took a single um, lineage community and divided it into two administrative villages or two administrative towns. And so the towns... Uh, Huku, Lower Huku had the advantage of having the Hugong Temple in it, but it seemed Upper Huku was kind of left out of the action because they were administratively separate from Lower Huku and deciding that they also needed to get in on the action <laughs> went and refurbished the, the Hugong family temple 
and then created a whole bunch of temples alongside of the Hugung family temple in anticipation of the huge numbers of visitors who would soon be arriving to pay their respects to Hugung. And they were going to build a hotel and they were going to build a new road. And, oh, man, I mean, they had their... But the interesting thing about the whole business was that here you had basically two communities who were struggling to get into the act of hosting um, the pilgrims who might come to worship Hukong. And the creation of Huku as a center for the worship of Hukong was in direct competition with the central temple to Hukong in Fangyan and um, was basically begun in Huku with an eye over their shoulder at the pilgrims on their way to Fangyan as a way of making Huku an important stop uh, in the roots of the pilgrims on their way to Fangyan to take advantage of that flow of people. Um, And so you have communities as I put it, struggling with one another to establish their uh, legitimacy in the eyes of uh, prospective pilgrims uh, as a way of uh, cashing in on the development of uh, the cult to this deity. Um, A very interesting phenomenon on the political level. It's not what we would expect the political level in a place like People's China to represent. There is, of course, that political dimension which has to be kept in mind all the time by all the performers on the streets. That is, you 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 can say certain things and you can say certain things, but there gets to a point where you cross the threshold and uh, public security is likely to reel you in and uh, keep you incarcerated for a while and uh, make it difficult for you to perform anywhere uh, for the rest of your life. So um, there is, of course, the relationship between performers and the state and the state's overall uh, uh, ideological umbrella, which has certainly become broader, but which... It is is still very much there, and that's generally what we tend to think of when we're thinking of the political. But here we have an example of people within a particular system competing with one another politically for advantage within that system, um, and and that is a uh, I, I think a political dimension that is is not often recognized or not often seen. Uh, in discussions of the political in China. Thank you. Now, as um, the the last question I'll ask you before we um, come to our conclusion gets at uh, the town of Fotong, which you just mentioned Uh, shortly before. You have a chapter on the resacralization of a commercial fair in Fotong town, which actually interestingly gets at both successful and unsuccessful attempts at um, reviving cults and resacralizing. Did you want to speak a little bit to what's happening in Fotong um, and how this phenomenon of resacralization um, fits in with your larger story and um, and what's important about that for the larger structure of the book? Yeah, well, the story of Fotong is kind of the icing on the cake. 
um, since my argument, uh, as you laid it out so nicely, um, is um, along the lines that the secular fair that was given the space to develop has provided a venue in which um, willy-nilly it has kind of stimulated or added momentum to the religious revival which has been going on uh, in China in a variety of contexts. Um, and uh, in the case of Fortang, we have a, a fairly obvious example of a secular fair in which uh, or around which um, the temple, which was originally the reason for being for the fair in Fortang, um, and had been destroyed, not during the Cultural Revolution like most of the rest of the temples in China, but had been destroyed earlier uh, during the Great Leap Forward, when a reservoir was built in the region and it, in the old temple had been inundated. Um, so when the temple fair came back at Fortang, um, it was there without any temple and was just a plain old secular fair. Um, but before long, uh, the community got together and with a little bit of help, uh, from Buddhist associations um, uh, decided that they were going to rebuild Shuanglin Temple, uh, a double Shuanglin, uh, double forest uh, temple, um, which had been a prominent Buddhist temple from uh, early times, and um, uh, basically completed uh, my total social phenomena and combining once again the secular events of uh, the market fair um, with the religious context provided by Shuanglin Temple. So um, since my argument was that the fairs had provided a venue which had uh, contributed to an ongoing religious revival, um, uh, the fairs were uh, uh, an altogether appropriate venue for the practice of religious ritual. And so um, this this secular fair, and together with its new temple, had, were, were kind of the, the, the proof of the pudding, so to speak, that my uh, hypothesis had, had, some, had some meat on it. Well, Jean, thank you so much for making the time um, to talk with me today. I know there's a lot in the book that we didn't have a chance to cover. It's a very rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't cover but that you'd like to mention or point out, especially for listeners perhaps who haven't had a chance to read the book? I don't know. I, I think I think we, we covered it pretty well, I think. Uh, your questioning was quite comprehensive. <laughs> Okay, well, great. Well, congratulations on the book and best of luck um, with your next project. And thank you so much. Thank you, ma'am. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books and East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.